Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Andrew Yochinsky for a conversation about monasticism during the Crusades. So we're going to focus the conversation in on monasticism during the Crusading period in the Eastern Mediterranean region. Dr. Yochinsky is Professor of Medieval History at Royal Holloway University of London in the UK. He's a co-author of the monograph, Latin and Greek Monasticism in the Crusader States, which was published by Cambridge University Press. This introduction is being recorded after the conversation completed with Dr. Yochinsky. At the end of that chat, Dr. Yochinsky made a kind mention that the book, again, Latin and Greek Monasticism in the Crusader States, was co-authored by the late scholar Bernard Hamilton, who passed away prior to the book's completion. But Dr. Yochinsky and Professor Emeritus Hamilton certainly collaborated and wrote the book together. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and find it as informative as I did. Let's start the episode. Welcome to the call, Andrew. Thank you. Very glad to be here. So what is monasticism? <laughs> That's a nice, easy question to start with, Andrew. A softball. And it's it's good, too, to, for, to start, uh, you know, broad for... Uh, you know, anyone listening that may be newer to the topic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, monasticism is the practice of dedicating oneself, one's life, uh, to the worship of God in seclusion from the world. And that can be done either in a community, which we call uh, cenobitic monasticism, and that's the most frequent kind, so you're, you're in a monastery, a monastic community, or it can be done in solitude, uh, and we call that anchoritic monasticism, um, from which we get the word anchorite, mm. or hermit, someone who lives alone. Mm-hmm. And when we look at the different popular religions during the crusading period, um, Greek Orthodox is one, uh, Christ, uh, Catholic, so Catholicism is another. Um, could be other ones if you want to reference any, any other ones of that, of that period. How does monasticism come into, into play with these different um, popular religions of that period? Okay, so all the, di- the different branches of Christianity were um, pretty well formed um, by the time of the First Crusade, which is the very end of the 11th century. Um, and so each tradition within uh, Christianity had its own different forms of monastic life. But monasticism began in a particular geographic location. And that geographic mm-hmm. location is the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, popularly, hmm. it's thought to have started in Egypt, uh, probably in the third century. Uh, But certainly by the um, early 4th century, we know that there are also monks and monasteries in the Holy Land, in in the Roman province of Palestine, as it was then, and in Syria. And by the end of the 4th century, there's also monasticism in Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey. So all around the Mediterranean uh, basin, the eastern Mediterranean basin, um, we have... Um, different examples of uh, monasteries and monasticism 
both male and female, um, certainly by 400 AD. Hmm. And um, from around that time, we also then start to get um, monasticism um, appearing in the Western uh, Roman Empire, as it was then, um, Mm -hmm. and uh, taking a slightly different kind of form, uh, developing its own slightly different traditions. Uh, And so um, by the time of the First Crusade, um, in the 1090s, mm-hmm. uh, there is already a very strong tradition of monasticism in the Greek Orthodox and Armenian and Coptic churches, the churches of the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, in the places where it had started. In other words, in Egypt, Syria, the Holy Land, Asia Minor. What we get then uh, from around about 1100 onwards um, is um the uh the if you like the 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 um entry into that uh that those existing that existing monastic landscape mm-hmm. um of western catholic monasticism as well because the crusaders uh, who settled in the holy land uh creating what we call the crusader states brought with them their own monastic traditions and founded their own monasteries um, in the Holy Land uh, and Syria. Um, so um, monasticism um, is always there from the, um, the, from the early 4th century onwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but what, what, what starts to happen from around 1100 is that we have a huge mixture of different of Western and uh, Eastern Christian uh, traditions. So... When it comes to monasticism, what purpose do they serve in the minds of the um, liturgy? What 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 is the purpose of them in 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 the minds of those that um, oversee the Armenian Church at the time, the Coptic Church, etc.? The primary purpose of monasticism, as far as monks themselves are concerned is to worship God. Um, and the, if you like, the kind of ideology or the principle of monasticism from a religious point of view is that the liturgy, um, the, um, the actual, the, 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 the formal worship of God um, through liturgy is, is best done and can only really be done effectively, this is the thinking, um, in a monastic setting in a setting in which monks or nuns Mm. um, are secluded from the worries, the burdens of everyday life um, in in the world outside. Um, So it's primarily about the worship of God. Um, And the, um, uh, the, the rules for living and the, the kind of context uh, of monastic life, um, the spirituality of monasticism, uh, the rules by which the institutions themselves govern daily life are all kind of secondary to and, and subordinate to that primary purpose, which is the worship of God. Okay. So, and when we're talking about the crusader states for this conversation... Um, what, what, can you describe the, the geographical catchment area? 
Yeah, sure. So the first crusade was launched um, in Western Europe um, by the Pope, Pope Urban II, in 1095. Uh, and he launched it um, with the specific purpose of, uh, as he put it, liberating the holy places um, uh, from uh, the rule of the Turks. Uh, at this point, it's uh, the Seljuk Turks um, uh, were the regime that was that was that was ruling uh, in uh, the Holy Land. Uh, in other words, the the region which is now the modern state of Israel and the occupied territories, Israel, Palestine, Syria, um, Asia Minor, now Turkey. Um, so the intention was to um, conquer uh, and recover um, on behalf of Christendom uh, the holy places, by which primarily Europeans meant the city of Jerusalem, um, but, but also other areas that are um, associated with the biblical narrative um, of the Holy Land. Mm -hmm. However, um, the method by which that was to be done um, which was marching huge armies overland through Europe, through Constantinople, Asia Minor, south through Syria. That method entailed the conquest of territory on the way. Uh, and so, in fact, um, the Crusaders established themselves not only in the Holy Land, but also um, in parts of northern Syria, particularly around Antioch in now in Turkey, but then northwest Syria, and along the coastline of Syria uh, into what's now Lebanon, and all the way down uh, as far uh, south uh, almost as, as Egypt, uh, as far south as Gaza on the um, Palestinian coast. So the Crusader States um, is really a series of territories, lordships that's established by the Crusaders and, their, and, and maintained by their successors, um, uh, the, those who, who settled there and remained there. Um, uh, it's a series of lordships that covers um, more or less the whole of the eastern Mediterranean coastline mm -hmm. uh, from that kind of angle of Syria and Turkey all the way down to the Sinai Peninsula uh, in, the, in, the, in the south. It doesn't stretch inland all that far, um, but um, it's it's a coastal uh, strip. It's uh, the easternmost uh, part is uh, roughly bounded by the River Jordan uh, within uh, the modern state of Israel-Palestine. Okay, so at that point in time, you'd mentioned uh, Ar Armenian, um, Coptic, uh, so Armenian more in the Caucasus. Uh, area Coptic, obviously, uh, no, or well, the Armenians. Sorry, it is yeah. it's it's confusing and okay. a little bit unfair. The Armenians, of course, do originate from the Caucasus, mm -hmm. um, but because of the Seljuk advance, the Seljuk conquest of Asia Minor, um, large numbers of Armenians had been resettled, okay. um, uh, or, or resettled themselves, I should say, in that area, which is if one thinks of. Um, the southeastern corner of modern-day Turkey mm -hmm. and the northwestern area of Syria. So um, they create a, a, a new 
a state sometimes called Lesser Armenia, um, which eventually becomes a kingdom of its own, um, based in, in that kind of region. So there are quite large mm-hmm. populations of Armenians in cities like Antioch and Edessa, um, which is now Urfa and Turkey, um, places like Tarsus, for example. Um, uh, so so the Armenians have, have kind of shifted to that area. But yeah, the, and, and the Copts are in, in Egypt, um, uh, largely, that's the, the indigenous Christian uh, population of, of Egypt. There's also another important group, which we mustn't forget, well, two, two important groups, which are, um, there's a group which, um, uh, which are sometimes known in, in Western sources as the Jacobites. Um, they're more properly called Syrian Orthodox. Um, so these are members of um, a, a, a Christian church, um, which uh, they're, they're uh, Syrians. Uh, Syriac is their liturgical language, mm-hmm. and they're mostly to be found in in um, within the confines of modern day Syria. But then it's really important and, and often forgotten that um, throughout this period, and indeed still um, up to the present day, quite large numbers of Arabs were also Christian. Mm. So we have an indigenous Arabic speaking population that is also Christian. Um, because they had never converted to Islam during the Arab invasions of the seventh century, um, so there's there is a, a strong um, mm-hmm. population of of indigenous Arabic speaking Christians throughout this this period mm-hmm. and Greek Orthodox. And, and they are, they're mostly Greek Orthodox. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, Greek Orthodox is present as well. Okay, so the Christian army come comes in. Um, during the during the crusade so tell tell us more about then um, what occurs in terms of monasticism what what was that part of life then in the in the settling in that region okay so um i mentioned that um there are always well there are christian monasteries um from the fourth century onwards in the holy land and syria Um, And most of these are founded by Greek Orthodox um, populations, um, and they continue. Um, There is, some of them had periods of interruption between the 4th century and the late 11th century, um, but quite large numbers of them um, continue to to, to function as they always had, Mm -hmm. or are refounded at some point. So they're, they're already there. Uh, so there are Greek monasteries in, in the Holy Land and Syria already. A lot of the Greek monasteries are in um, desert regions within the Holy Land. Uh, so the foundations going back to the 4th century tend to be concentrated um, in the region known as the Judean Desert, yeah. um, which is the region to the south and east of the city of Jerusalem. Um, stretching um, as far east as the as, as the Dead Sea, um, and well, t- as far east. If you go direct due east from Jerusalem, you get to um, the Jordan, Jericho, and the Jordan. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and if you go south from there, you get to the, the Dead Sea. So there's a region to the east and to the south of Jerusalem known as the Judean Desert. Mm -hmm. And um, there were probably 20, 25 monasteries um, founded there in the early um, uh, Byzantine period, in other words, between the 4th and the, and the 7th centuries. Um, a handful of these are still um, extant um, and, and continuing mm -hmm. um, by the time the Crusaders arrive. The certainly imposition of a new, of, of new Christian rule from the West on the Holy Land mm -hmm. um, has two effects really on monasticism. One effect um, is to um, foster and nurture refoundation and reinvigoration of those existing Greek Orthodox monasteries. Hmm. So there are some refoundations, there's quite a lot of rebuilding uh, and, uh, and a new recruitment to those monasteries. The other effect, however, um, is to implant new uh, monasteries from the West. So these are monasteries which are founded by um, Western clerics who have come in the wake of the crusade. And some of them are founded, um, well, they're founded all, all over the Holy Land. Most mm -hmm. of them um, are associated with shrines. Um, in other words, with holy places which are identified in the, um, in the Bible, either in the Old or the New Testament. So if one thinks about the city of Jerusalem itself, um, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, um, which is the uh, burial place of Christ, um, has a monastic community attached to it, uh, as does the place um, where the Jewish temple had been. The Jewish temple had been destroyed by the Romans. Um, the Arabs had um, built uh, an important holy place of their own, the, the Dome of the Rock um, there. Um, that's taken over and becomes... A monastery, um, a Latin Catholic monastery known as the Temple of the Lord. Um, there are other um, important monasteries in and around Jerusalem itself. Places like Bethany, for example, important in the gospel narrative, but also Bethlehem, uh, Nazareth, um, and, and other places that, that have biblical associations. So the Latins concentrate on um, places that are identifiable as um, shrines or as places that pilgrims want to visit because they are prominent in the in the Bible. During this period of uh, time, were any uh, existent monasteries allowed to stay under their current um, ruling faction? Or were all of them switched to Latin or, or somewhere in between? No, there are some examples of some which are um, kind of taken over by the Latins, which had been Greek monasteries which were taken over by the Latins. So one example is a very venerable um, Greek monastery in Antioch uh, called uh, St. Paul, the monastery of St. Paul, um, which is still in the hands of the Greeks at the very beginning of the 12th century in the early 1100s, mm -hmm. but at some point during the 1100s seems to have switched over mm. to Latin ownership. Um, but on the, that's quite rare. 
um, on the whole, the Greek monasteries are permitted to continue as Greek monasteries. And in fact, the Latins mm -hmm. show very little, the, the Crusaders show very little interest in them on the whole. And so there are some mm -hmm. examples of um, places that are regarded as, as holy in both the Greek um, Orthodox and the Catholic Latin traditions where you get a Latin and Greek monastery side by side. So um, one example would be Mount Tabor um, in the Galilee region, the, the place of the, in, in the Bible, the transfiguration of Christ. Mm -hmm. um, and um, there, there's a Greek monastery and a Latin monastery kind of side by side throughout the, the Crusader period. Mm -hmm. so, um, for the secular population, what interaction, if any, did they have with the monasteries? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, probably um, not very much um, with most of the Greek monasteries because the Greek monasteries tend to be in quite remote locations mm -hmm. um, and keep themselves to themselves. So um, the, the pilgrims from the Greek Orthodox world, so from the Byzantine Empire um, or from the, the Greek islands, um, or from the Balkans, um, and sometimes from Russia. So orth the people from the Orthodox world would visit um, the Greek monasteries in the Holy Land. Um, mm -hmm. But Western pilgrims coming from the West wouldn't. Um, and um, most of the Greek monasteries didn't function as um, parishes. They, they wouldn't really have a the function of ministering to mm -hmm. um, to, to uh, parochial life. For the, the Latin monasteries, the case is a little bit different because most of, not all of them, but most of them, as I said, are connected with holy places and are therefore places important for pilgrims to visit. So most of their interaction would probably be through pilgrims um, visiting the monasteries. Uh, and and worshiping there, mm -hmm. um, some of the Western, the, the Latin monasteries also have a kind of parochial function as well. Mm -hmm. Was there any other uh, similarities or or contrasts, um, whichever way you want to take this answer, between these um, prominent uh, monasteries? Yeah, I think um, I think it is important to um, to make the point that. Latin and Greek monasticism work in very different ways. Um, I mean, there are obviously there's some kind of baseline similarity in that they're they're both trying to do more or less the same thing, which is to provide um, a, a framework um, for um, religious um, people to uh, to to live out of the world uh, and and to to worship God in 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 community um, but the way they go about it is mm -hmm. quite different and the most important difference is this that um, most of the monasteries in the western or catholic or latin tradition whatever you want to call it um, follow one of two rules most of them follow either the rule of saint benedict which was written in the sixth century and it's an italian rule in origin or they follow the rule of St. Augustine, 
which um, is actually actually sort of is is a kind of hybrid rule which had been finalised around about eleven hundred, mm. around about the time of the first crusade. But so so almost all the Western monasteries are following one of those two rules. With Greek monasteries, the case is very different because each Greek monastery is autonomous and can follow its own rule for living, its own set of prescriptions, which are laid down by whoever founded the monastery. So there really aren't rules in the same sort of way. Mm. So you can have very different, uh, a very different character of monastery mm. within the Greek Orthodox tradition from from what you can find in the in the Western tradition. And this means that if one's looking at how um, monasticism actually worked in terms of sort of day to day living, mm -hmm. there's much more variety and contrast within the Greek tradition mm. in Crusader states than within the Latin tradition. In the Latin tradition, what are the main differences between those two uh, categories that you described? The Benedictine and the Augustinian. Yeah. yeah. Um, Augustinian monasteries, the, the monasteries following the rule of Augustine, um, are a little bit less enclosed than um, Benedictine monasteries. So um, within the Benedictine tradition, um, monks or nuns for that matter um, are um, follow a, what we call a strict rule of enclosure which means they're not supposed to leave the monastery um, and their way of life is very heavily circumscribed there's a vow of stability um, and so on um, the rule of Augustine is a little bit more flexible and the reason for that is because it's designed for a, a little bit more um, of a variety of communities. So for just to give you an example of what I mean, most of the monasteries that are um, established around the important shrines or holy places, I mentioned the Holy Sepulchre and the Temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, those would be Augustinian monasteries because the functions of the monks include... Um, services for pilgrims and maintaining the shrines and so on mm -hmm. um and and some of the for example hospitals tended if they're religious hospitals would tend to use the rule of augustine so the rule of augustine mm. allows for a little bit more um flexibility in, in design of of um daily living how did the tr how did the two treat um topics like chastity and self-denial and self-restraint etc um, they, um, all monks of whatever tradition, um, have to take vows of chastity. So there's no, there's to be no sexual contact, um, with anyone of either sex in any monastery. And that's true of, of Benedictines, Augustinians, or, or any, um, monastery in the Greek, um, tradition as well. Mm -hmm. Um, they also are supposed to be poor, um, or at least the individual members of monasteries are supposed to take vows of poverty, although that doesn't necessarily mean that the community itself can't attract wealth. And in fact, they have to attract a certain amount of wealth as a corporation in order to provide them with an income stream. Mm -hmm. But the member, the, the individual monks or nuns don't own personal property. Mm -hmm. um, and the third, so we've got chastity, we've got poverty, or at least personal poverty. And the third important um, 
that sort of strand of that is obedience, um, obedience to a superior. Um, and in both forms of Latin monasticism, Augustinian and Benedictine, um, the idea really and is that an individual monk or nun is like a cog in a machine. Um, the, the, particularly in the rule of Benedict, the ideal is that you um, allow your individuality um, to be suppressed or to be subordinated, I should say. It's a better way of putting it, to be subordinated to the community. It's the, it's the life of the community that's important, mm. not the life of the individual within the community. Um, there is an emphasis on austerity, but it's, if you like, a kind of corporate austerity rather than an individual austerity. So individual feats of fasting or self-mortification are not really part of the Western um, hmm. um, Latin tradition. And that's where one of the differences between Latin and Greek um, monasticism lies. Uh, Greek, in fact, all Eastern monasticism, and one can include here Syrian and, and Armenian traditions as well. Um, Eastern monasticism uh, allows for a higher degree of individuality mm -hmm. um, or individualism. And one can see that in, in one important way. So in Western monasteries, monks are required to live together and sleep together in a dormitory like in a boarding school, you know, mm -hmm. they, they, they eat together and they sleep together. Mm -hmm. So they have no kind of personal space, really. In the Greek tradition, monks live in cells um, by themselves. And quite a lot mm -hmm. of their activity during the course of the day is private prayer. Um, so there is, there is, although there are, there, there are liturgical offices, as there are in the Western tradition, the Greek tradition also privileges individual um, worship, individual prayer, meditation mm. um, by uh, monks or, or nuns. So there is that degree of ind individualism. And that also allows for, allows more scope for individual acts of austerity mm. or self-mortification, such as extremes of fasting mm. or all-night vigils of prayer not sleeping, um, you know, staying up all night to, to pray or whatever, or um, mm. activities like, um, extreme activities like um, hanging oneself with heavy weights, hanging heavy weights from the body in order to, to or, or tying um, metal bands around one's chest to deliberately to restrict breathing and so on. These are some of the extremes mm. um, that uh, go on in the Eastern, particularly the Syrian monastic tradition. Um, and the other important um, distinction is that um, in the Western tradition, stability, remaining within the same community, is is really privileged, with it, particularly within the rule of Benedict. Whereas the Eastern tradition allows for um, a um, much more kind of fluidity between the states of community living and individual living to the extent that it's not that uncommon to find Greek Orthodox monks going off on their own to live 
in the desert for certain periods, particularly during mm. Lent, um, to observe a regime of fasting or personal austerity away from the community and then going back to the community. That fluidity between um, anchoritism, living alone, and mm. celibate, celibatic living, living in community, is built into orthodox monast or Eastern monasticism, where it isn't really in Western monasticism. Mm. And these more extreme practices that, that you described, when they happen then, um, was it more by someone's own faculty? Oftentimes it was their choice to practice in a more fundamental way? Yeah, it's, it's, it's individual choice. And um, it's not always um, approved by the superior, by, by an abbot. Um, but it is very much a matter of individual choice. Um, so one Eastern tradition, um, which is goes way back to the 5th century, but is revived during the Crusading period, is um, the practice known as stylitism, which is living on a pillar. Mm. Um, and the, the most famous exponent of this is the 6th century saint Simon the Stylite in Syria. Um, who who occupied um, a, a column which was probably originally from a ruined Roman temple and built himself a little platform on top of it mm. and just <clears throat> lived on this on this platform and became a kind of you know a holy man who drew who attracted the attention of people from nearby villages because he was performing a very public holiness if you like now that tradition never really catches on in the West, but it does get revived in the East. And so there are stylitic practices that we know about in the Crusader period in the Holy Land and, and Syria. Um, another practice is, is cave dwelling. Mm -hmm. So one of the um, one of the Greek Orthodox um, monastic founders whom I discuss in the book is actually a Cypriot, because uh, I talk about Cyprus as well. Um, a Cypriot called Neophytos, who had lived as a monk in the community uh, in Cyprus for a while, and then he decides to go off on a kind of solitary um, trek pilgrimage through the Holy Land, visits the holy sites, goes back to Cyprus, and then um, starts to build himself a kind of cave dwelling. Mm. Uh, he hollows out a cave in the cliff face um, near the town of Paphos in western Cyprus. Mm -hmm. uh, and eventually this becomes a cave monastery. Uh, he's told by the bishop that he has to, local bishop, he has to take on uh, disciples, other monks. Um, and so he, he founds this cave monastery. Um, but he wants to be a, a recluse and he calls himself the recluse and he creates this very strange, this really unique community, um, which you can still see, still visit it in just outside Paphos, mm -hmm. where his own cell is a cave in mm -hmm. the cliffs and the adjoining cave is the monastery chapel. Um, and the other monks have their own cells in the valley um, they come together for, for worship and they never actually see him. He's the, mm. the, the recluse, Neophytus is the, the abbot of this monastery. They live a communal life 
he lives a solitary life and he directs them as this kind of unseen ghostly presence mm. um, and that that kind of thing is possible within the greek tradition um it would be impossible really within the the latin western tradition mm. how does the carpet uh compartmentalization of the genders work amongst the different monasteries so the monks and the the nuns yeah okay so um so if we're talking about monasticism in or if we're talking about the monasteries in the uh, in the eastern mediterranean um within the greek orthodox and all the eastern monastic traditions um there is strict compartmentalization so you never have mixed communities of monks and nuns you either have monks or you have nuns okay, okay. um so some communities are founded for female religious for nuns most are for for men and in the greek tradition there's a very strict set of rules to ensure that no women can enter the monastery even as visitors in most of the western world that's also the case although in western christian um, monasticism in the 12th century there are some attempts to found what are called mixed or double communities where you have men and women living um i was going to say under the same roof which is sort of true mm. they're supposed to be compartmentalized so they're supposed to be it's supposed to be a single um uh, foundation but with kind of men on one side and women on the other and they're not supposed to meet or have any contact with each other so you, there are a few examples of those in western europe in the mm -hmm. 12th and 13th centuries in fact as it happens none of those that that type of double monastery is imported into the crusader state so there mm. aren't as far as i know any examples of men and women in the same community in the crusader states so for the latin um, monasteries in the crusader states were some monasteries designated for monks and then some for nuns yeah yeah so um so most of them are for monks but some are founded specifically for nuns so probably the two most prominent examples of female monasteries or convents um uh for for um in, in the latin um tradition in in the holy land are um the convent of bethany the village of bethany which is just to the east of jerusalem which has an important role in the gospel narrative um, there's a monastery dedicated to Mary and Martha, which is for, founded for women. It's founded in the 1130s um, by the Crusaders. Um, and the story goes that it was founded by the Latin Queen of Jerusalem, Melisand, um, for her younger sister. Uh, she had three sisters, and the youngest, Yvetta, um, was a nun. But Melisande apparently didn't think that um, someone from the royal family should just be an ordinary nun in a convent. So she founded this, this convent at Bethany so that her sister could be the abbess of it. Hmm. That's the story anyway. But, but certainly Bethany is, a, is a, a convent for women. And the other one is the convent of St. Anne in Jerusalem itself, within the city of Jerusalem itself. And that's founded very early on after the 
first crusade so in the very early years of the of the 12th century in the early 1100s um and that's a convent for for women and, and there are some mm. others as well so were nuns a concept in greek orthodoxy yeah yeah they are yeah there, there aren't so many um of uh, nuns as monks but there certainly are some um some communities of of nuns in the um medieval greek world okay yeah. so similar in this respect to um catholic monasteries they they would have their own um monastery designated to to yeah. nuns and and, and worship yeah. and stuff okay yeah yeah okay that's right yeah so the crusades end around 1300 what changes if anything about this landscape okay so um the Crusader states more or less ceased to exist as a kind of political entity in 1291. Um, in fact, they had been reduced uh, in, in extent during the course, well, from the 1250s onwards, um, because there's a new um, regime that, that uh, arises in the Islamic world called the Mamluks, uh, and they start to conquer territory from um, the Crusader states. And that process um, takes place from about 1250 and ends in 1291. Um, and so there are no more Western Christians left, basically. Mm. The ones who had, who, had, who had still left all fled and most of them settled in Cyprus, um, which is uh, remains a Christian possession, or go back uh, to the west. So, what happens to the to their monasteries and, and convents? Uh, some of them relocate to Cyprus. Um, some of them relocate to the west, to um, uh, France or Italy, um, or some of them cease to exist altogether. Um, but there are no more Western Latin monasteries or convents remaining on the in the mainland of Syria or the Holy Land after 1291. The Greek monasteries, um, some of them do suffer from the the right or the, the expansion of the Mamluks, but actually the Mamluks are happy to leave most of them in place. Um, so um, the, the main ones continue to survive um, throughout the Mamluk period and into the Ottoman period, which starts in the 16th century. Um, they don't necessarily prosper, um, but a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them do, um, do survive uh, throughout that period. Survive as in they were, they were still inhabited by monks and nuns? Still, yeah. Okay. Still inhabited and still maintaining worship as they had done. I mean, the, the classic example is um, a monastery uh, called St. Saba, um, which, is, um, which had been founded at the very end of the 5th century, in four, traditionally the year is 498, uh, founded in the Kidron Valley um, in the Judean Desert. Um, it's southeast of, of Jerusalem and, and Bethlehem quite close to the, the, the Dead Sea. Um, and that continues, as far as we know, a pretty much unbroken 
continuous existence um, throughout the period um, and, and is still functioning today. Um, so uh, since since four nine eight, um, that's the exception. Um, but the, but it's an example of that kind of continuity continuing. So yeah, some do mm. continue throughout the whole period. It's been really enjoyable speaking with you today, Andrew. Thank you for coming on the show. You're most welcome. It's been fun to talk about this with you as well. So again, everybody, Dr. Yojinsky is a co-author of the monograph Latin and Greek Monasticism in the Crusader States. I'll drop a link to the book in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com subpage that's associated to this episode. Andrew and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.